in Mark chapter 15. So we'll give you a moment to get there. We're going to be starting at verse 16. Verse 16. We'll be reading that in a minute. First of all, I'm trying to figure out this little guy is down here under the pulpit hiding out. Who knows his name? Grogu. Yes, Grogu, a.k.a. Baby Yoda. Okay, Baby Yoda. He's pretty cute, isn't he? Yeah. He's from a show. Put him back down here. I can keep an eye on him. Make sure he doesn't get into trouble, eat something. He's from a show you might recognize called The Mandalorian. It's a Star Wars franchise show. And um, the main character is, as you guessed it, a Mandalorian. Mandalorian is a warrior, group of warriors, and the two of them... They they kind of travel around. They travel around the universe or the galaxy or whatever, and they get into all kinds of scrapes and adventures and things. And a lot of them are hilarious. And the Mandalorian, you know, he's there's there's one aspect of the show that drives the plot line, and that's his religion. His religion. And the Mandalorian, he belongs to a strict sect of his religion known as the Way. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sounds familiar. You find it in Acts chapter 9. The Way is the name given to Jesus' followers in the years after his death and resurrection. Now in the TV show, the Mandalorians, the Way has one cardinal rule. They wear a helmet that covers their entire head. They're never allowed to take it off in front of other people. And if they do, it's like a cardinal sin. And there's only one way that they can atone for that in the show. And the main character, he actually does this as part of a plot in one of the, one of the shows. And he asks his religious leader, he says, you know, because he broke this, this law, you know, what he can do about it. And she says, this is the way. Like, accept it. This is the way. This is how it is. And I think that's a very helpful way, no, no pun intended, to think about our own faith in Jesus Christ. You know, and what it means to truly follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Following Jesus, if you follow Him long enough, you're going to encounter suffering. If you live in this world long enough, you're going to encounter suffering. It's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time. But if you follow Jesus, especially, you're going to encounter suffering in your life at some point. This is the way. This is the way. Don't believe me? Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Then he said to them all, that's Jesus, if anyone wants to follow me, follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Then over in chapter 14, verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. 
That sounds pretty strong language, doesn't it? That's why we have to count the cost before we follow Jesus. Suffering can take many forms, mental, physical, spiritual, but there's always purpose in suffering. And there's always hope as well with Jesus Christ. Because Jesus said, and your spoiler alert here, John 16.33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in the world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. I have conquered the world. And then 1 Peter 5.10, so Apostle John, now the Apostle Peter, the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. After you have suffered a little while. This is the way. Jesus suffered horribly. Scripture and tradition tell us that Jesus' apostles also suffered for teaching about Him. Acts chapter 5. Why don't you turn over to Acts chapter 5. Keep a finger in Mark 15. We're going to read that, trust me, in a minute. Turn over to Acts chapter 5, verse 40. 971 if you're using the Pew Bible. I'm going to be kind of bouncing back and forth between the CSB and the ESV in my Scripture passages. And we will, I will be reading from the English Standard Version for our main passage today. Acts chapter 5, 40-42. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. The New Testament tells us of the death of only two of the apostles. Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus and then committed suicide in his grief because he went to the temple for absolution instead of going to his Savior, Jesus Christ. And then James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, who was executed by Herod in around A.D. 44. That's in Acts 12, verse 2. Tradition tells us that the other apostles carried the gospel far and wide and suffered greatly. I won't run down the list for you of how each one suffered and died. You can look it up. There's a great book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. should be required reading. You know, basically there was crucifixions, beheadings, spearing, hanging, stabbing, shot through with arrows, burned. John was the only one to escape a violent end, and he was exiled to Patmos where he wrote Revelation. Jesus' disciples will suffer. This is generally what it means to follow Jesus, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
So today we're going to consider Jesus' sufferings. What did he suffer? How did he suffer? And why did he suffer? And hopefully we'll come out on the other side with hope and not despair. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, oh how we thank you for your word, which while it may be hard to us at times to follow, we rejoice that you have preserved it for us. Now Lord, help us and give us understanding through the power of your Holy Spirit to shine your light on this gospel of Mark and the sufferings of your Son, Jesus Christ. In His name, Amen. So over the last two weeks, you've seen Jesus' trial, part one and part two, before the Jewish leaders, before Pontius Pilate and the people, and they've called for Him to be crucified. In the kangaroo court, as Jason put it, that was, I think that was very good. Good way to describe it. Brother Allen shared with us last week how horrible the Roman scourging was. And it's just going to get worse before it gets better. So if you could stand with me, read Mark chapter 15 in honor of the reading of the Word. 16 through 33. It's on page 904 of the Pew Bible. says this, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Gagatha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each one should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. May God bless the reading of His Word. Please be seated. So as I said, a lot of suffering happening here. A lot of suffering happening here. 
First off, Jesus suffered mockery and abuse, verses 16 through 20. The Roman soldiers lead him into the governor's headquarters, and they gather around, and the soldiers likely had endured years of guerrilla tactics from Jewish nationalists, and we're going to take out their frustration on the king of the Jews. A Roman cohort was about 600 men. So think about that. The whole battalion or the whole cohort were gathered around and most likely those who were not serving off duty. So it could have been hundreds of soldiers gathered around Jesus. And like I said, they had probably endured years of guerrilla tactics from Jewish nationalists and they were going to take out their frustration on their king. Not only that, but their loyalty to Caesar as their only true king is also driving their hatred towards Jesus. You know, I think it's a well-put statement that I read that Jewish nationalism is what got him arrested and Roman nationalism is what leads to his abuse and mockery and ultimately his crucifixion. They were going to show this king of the Jews the power of Rome. King Jesus was going to show us how much he loves us. Dr. Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, says this about Mark 15. I thought this was a really great statement. Mark 15 simultaneously is one of the most shameful and wonderful chapters in the Bible. What sinful man did to the Son of God can only make us weep. What the sinless Son of God did for man can only make us shout with joy for our Savior King who would suffer all that He suffered for you and me. What did He suffer? Our King suffered pain and humiliation. Flesh and tatters and raw, the soldiers throw a purple cloak on Him. Matthew says it's scarlet, but it's kind of both. This was likely a faded cavalryman's cape which was generally cheap and coarse material. I can only think and imagine the pain when this contacts the flesh that's been ripped and shredded due to the scourging. Then they they take a mock crown of twisted thorns and press it down onto his head. What sinful men intended to humiliate and cause pain our God purposed to fulfill His Scripture. They didn't even realize that this was a picture of God's curse now being put on Jesus. Genesis 3.18 Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Our God bears, God, our King bears God's curse in our place. In verse 18 of this passage, they mock Him again, saluting Him as they would Caesar. Hail, King of the Jews! Then they hit him again with a reed, which Matthew tells us they used as a mock scepter. As they insult him, they also spit on him. Now, I don't know Greek very well. Not much at all, honestly. Not as much as I probably should. I'll admit that. But those who do write that the tense of the verb used here indicates that the spitting and insulting was a continuous action throughout this process that he went through, throughout this torment. 
And then they kneel down to him in mock worship. Literally six different ways they mocked and abused him. Six different ways our Lord endured mockery and painful abuse for us. Isaiah 53.3 says this, He was despised and rejected by man, by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. But notice this, did Jesus cry out? Did he beg for mercy? This point? Did he beg for mercy? No. Did he complain about his rights being violated? Not that he really had any in Roman culture anyways. But no, he didn't. Our king suffered silently. Jesus was doing the will of the Father. He was doing a good work, the good work, the best outpouring of loving kindness and selflessness ever done ever done. Again, Danny Aiken writes this, completely alone, humiliated, naked, nearly beaten to death, our Savior endures yet again ridicule, shame, and pain at the hands of sinful men, at the hands of those He came to save. Oh, how heaven must have looked on in disbelief. Perhaps the angels wept Father sent His beloved Son to rescue and redeem a rebel race. Look at what they have done to our Lord. But look and never forget what our Lord has done for us. Oh, that I may be worthy of such a sacrifice. What do we do when we read something like that? What do we do with this? What an impact it should make in our lives. What an impact is it having in your life? What is Jesus doing in your life? Is He transforming you? Is He transforming you? He gave His life for you. Our redemption cost God His Son. How will it change you? Today. Oh, the power of our suffering King, how it should change us, how it must change us, how it will change us. Follow the King and entrust yourself to God. First Peter two twenty one through twenty three. Turn over to First Peter chapter two towards the back of your Bible. I have it written on my notes, so I don't have to turn, but I'll make you guys turn. <laughs> Keep you awake. Keep you awake. Brother Billy back there told me I had an hour and a half to go. He said, I could preach for an hour and a half. I said, all right. So you can tell him thank you. Yeah. I won't go that long, I promise. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For you were called to this, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, 
that you should follow in His steps. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in His mouth. When He was insulted, He did not insult in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but entrusted Himself to the One who judges justly. So we have to ask ourselves, as a point of application, when we suffer at the hands of others, how do we respond? Do we respond like the Lord Jesus? Do we respond like Jesus? Or do we inflict pain? Do we inflict insult, meanness in return for when people give us the pain? And if you think about it later and you say, oh man, two hours ago, I wish I'd had this. I have the perfect comeback. You know, you ever have that come to you? I wish I had said this. I would have really zinged them. You know? I could have really stung them with this. Like, and you're like, you can't go back, obviously. But I think you don't get credit for suffering silently when you do that. You wipe it out. Any credit you had for suffering silently. So, you need to trust in God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Turn over back to the left, Matthew chapter 5. I told you I was going to have you turn in all places. Dear Camilla and uh, Jason and everybody, Aiden, everybody was out this week, so we couldn't get the Scriptures up on the screen. And plus, you know, it wouldn't have mattered anyways because I was writing half of this sermon yesterday. <laughs> so... You would have only had half of them anyways. So turn over to Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, 859 in your pew Bible. Think about this when you respond to those who hurt you and those who insult you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This is Jesus speaking. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son, his son, take note of that, the Lord's son, rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Homework. Go read the Sermon on the Mount. Go read the Sermon on the Mount. And they led him out to crucify him. Now while it was the actions of sinful men who put Jesus on the cross, it was also the actions of a particular purpose of God to do so. Isaiah 53.10 Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. And in Mark's account alone, many other Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled in the crucifixion. As you should see at the bottom of your notes, I think hopefully it got on there. I didn't get a note packet this morning because uh, I came in before the ushers. Um, but I think they put on there, they put on there the prophecies. All right, good, good. You can see the prophecies fulfillment from the old to the new. You, you'll see those at your notes. You can look up the various passages. We don't have time to review all of them today. But basically, they reinforce the centrality and the significance of the cross in God's dealing with mankind, with humankind. 
A proper understanding of the cross is key to understanding everything. And one thing that is key to understanding, Jesus suffered by sacrificing Himself to save others. Jesus suffered by sacrificing Himself to save others. That's the second point. Three essential truths lay the foundation for making sense of Jesus' suffering on the cross. First truth, Jesus died as our substitute. The Lord Jesus Christ died in our place on the cross. Exodus 12, the Passover lamb. Christ is our Passover lamb who saves us with His blood. Hebrews 9 and verse 22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. None. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? My brother, my sister. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Second, Jesus died for our propitiation. Big word. On the cross, Jesus bore the full wrath of God on our behalf. He was not a martyr. The first martyr was Stephen. Jesus was not a martyr. He was a Savior. We've got to remember that. The Scripture says the wages of sin is death, and that all have sinned. Before an infinitely holy God, our sin is so putrid and a stench that it eternally separates us from Him and incurs the anger and wrath of God. Propitiation means that His sacrifice satisfied God's justice and His holiness on behalf of us, on behalf of sinners. God just can't say, God just can't say to you, Jason, Camilla, Jim, Lynn, Wayne, Amy, Rick, can't just say to you, oh, it's okay. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. Don, you're forgiven. You know, he can't just say that because then he wouldn't be God. And He wouldn't be good. And He wouldn't be holy. And He wouldn't be just if He just did that and forgot about it for no, for no reason. You know, God is holy and just and He is good. He is good, my friend. Third, Jesus died, died for our reconciliation. On the cross, Jesus suffered separation from God in a way that we can't quite understand. But those who don't know Jesus will understand when the day of judgment comes, what it means and what Christ went through. Jesus said, I and the Father are one, meaning that He is fully God. Yet while He suffered on the cross, the eternal Son experienced separation from the presence of His Father. Separation so severe that when it was endured by Jesus, he exclaimed a cry of unparalleled spiritual anguish and agony. But because he experienced the separation from us, for us, those who look to him for salvation are reconciled with God. Through him alone, we can find redemption. Friend, let me ask you something Is Jesus your substitute? Do you believe Jesus died to reconcile you to God? Are you reconciled with God 
Or are you separated from Him today? You can be made right with Him today. God will. He will give you a new heart. He will give you a new heart, one that seeks after Him. You will be at peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ today. Friend, it is never too late for a sinner to come to Jesus. You ponder that while we continue. Brothers and sisters in Christ, these doctrines are essential for a clear understanding of this text in front of us. Let's move on to verse 21. Our Savior endured humiliation at the cross, totally exhausted, crushed by the Roman flogging and scourging, and being beaten to death by an entire cohort of Roman legionnaires. Jesus is forced to pick up the cross beam and I won't try to pronounce what that word is. I didn't even put it in my notes because I knew I couldn't pronounce it. it begins with a P. I won't say I won't even try. Jesus is forced to pick it up and carry it to the place of his own crucifixion. Insult to injury. His body is in such a weakened condition that he could not continue, and they press a man named Simon into service to help him. Interestingly, little note here, the text mentions his sons Alexander and Rufus. A Rufus is mentioned elsewhere in Romans 16:13 along with his mother. We know also that Mark was written probably to the church that is in Rome. It's entirely possible that this entire family became Christians, maybe even because of this event. But they take him outside the city to the place of crucifixion called the skull. The Latin word for skull is where we get cavalry. When we say cavalry, calvaria, I believe is the Latin word for Golgotha. There they offer him wine mixed with myrrh. This concoction could be used to dull the senses and lessen the pain, but it's also extremely bitter. Not to mention that Jesus' face was broken, bloodied, lips probably swollen from the beating. And I can imagine how the acidity and sting of the alcohol must have felt when it touched his lips. No wonder he refused. But he also refused for other reasons. One has to wonder if this was mercy or just more cruelty. Then they proceed to strip him naked and nail his wrists and feet to the cross. Psalm twenty-two sixteen fulfilled. They take his clothes. They cast lots to see who got to keep them. Psalm twenty-two eighteen fulfilled. Perhaps he did have a loincloth. The text doesn't tell us. We know that in Jewish tradition it's considered a sin to look at a naked body, unless it's your child, like a small child, or somebody who you're taking care of for like medical needs or something like that to give them, bathe them. Otherwise, it was considered a sin to even look at a naked body for any other reason. But look, we learn next in 25 through 27 that our Savior endured injustice at the cross. Mark records 
for us that the crucifixion process begins around 9 a.m. local time, perhaps in an act of further mockery or an act of revenge against the Jewish leaders, Pilate nails the sign above his head for everybody to see. King of the Jews. John 19 informs us that the inscription was written in three languages, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The four Gospels record slightly different translations of the phrase. You can look it up and you can compare later today when you get home, but the variation is most likely due to the multiple languages. Multiple languages. In verse 27, we see that he was crucified between two robbers. Two robbers. Other translations use outlaw. I think that's probably a better word than what the ESV says as robbers. Outlaws. These men were most likely Jewish insurrectionists. Insurrectionists. Perhaps they even knew Barabbas. They probably did know Barabbas. He was the one that should have been up there with them. Maybe they were a former associate of the Apostle Simon, the zealot. Hard to say. Except that they were criminals and the sinless Son of God was crucified them as predicted in Isaiah 53.12. He was counted among the rebels. He was counted among the rebels. This is the ultimate example of the just suffering for the unjust. An innocent man, the only innocent man, condemned as an evildoer by the government, the ruling authorities, and the evildoer Barabbas set free in his place. The Apostle Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, captures it well. I won't make you turn there. 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that we might that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. But not only was He condemned as an evildoer by the ruling authorities, by the government, when you think about this, He was condemned as an evildoer by His Father. Even though He was sinless, he was numbered among the evildoers by God also. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ, the only righteous One, suffering for sinners and rebels. And we're all rebels. Make no mistake. We are all rebels against God. That's our fundamental problem since the beginning. Since the beginning, all have sinned. All like sheep have gone astray. But thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father, that you sent your Son to save us. It's only by your grace and your merciful goodness that we are saved. We're saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. Only by the grace of his suffering do we find redemption. Do we find redemption? 
Our Savior endured insults and blasphemy at the cross, 29 through 30. Those who hung around or were going by hurled insults at him and blasphemed him. They shake their heads at him and sarcastically taunt him in regards to his claims to destroy the temple and rebuild it. They also ridicule him for his claims to save others. That he should try to save himself. If, he, if you're the Messiah, save yourself. The height of blasphemy. They called him a blasphemer. They were the ones blaspheming God. This is yet another fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 7. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and they shake their heads. But the Jews are stubborn. They're hard-hearted. They will not believe in their Savior, their Messiah. Today's world, we face people who don't believe. Some of them may be Jewish. Most not. Many of them have mistaken notions about Jesus, believing that He was real. He was a real man, but not believing the truth of who He really is. Many deny that He actually claimed to be God at all, and that that was made up by His disciples. But when you read these verses, I challenge you, to not notice that they provide the strongest proof that Jesus' various claims are a reality. Commentator R. Allen Cole writes this, they virtually prove veracity of the saying about the destruction and rebuilding of the temple, for instance, that he spoke of saving others. That is, you use this particular word in connection with his work on their behalf, that he indeed claimed to be the Messiah and Israel's king. All these claims they undoubtedly disbelieve, but if Jesus had never made them, then their taunt has no sting. Their taunt has no sting. The nature of the Jewish error was in their view, Jesus' purpose was to save himself. That's the nature of their error. What they did not understand was that Jesus' purpose was to die. Our Savior suffered the cross to save others, verse 31 through 32. Like the others passing by the chief priests, the scribe and the scribes mocked him. Verses 31. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Excuse me, my nose is running. Got to catch it. Once again, like in the wilderness, when Jesus went to the wilderness, the enemy tempts Jesus to betray his purpose. The enemy's agents tempt Jesus to betray his, pur betray his purpose. But that's only because He doesn't want Jesus on the cross. He doesn't want Him on the cross. Because the enemy knows, the devil knows, it's his defeat. 
it's his defeat. Not only that, but if Jesus did save himself by avoiding the cross altogether, it would have shown that he was only human and not God. And not God. On top of that, we'd all be lost. Our faith would be in vain, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. The only path for the Messiah to save others was for him to refuse to save himself. This is the way of the suffering Savior King. Or Servant King, as the sermon title says. This is the way we are called to follow as followers of Jesus. It's a path of generous selflessness rooted in love for God and love for your neighbor. Selflessness. Application is simple yet profound. Follow the Savior. Follow the King. Follow the Savior. And trust, give yourself up for others. It's simple. Walk as Jesus walked. It's as simple as that, isn't it? Follow His example in what you think about and how you treat others, how He dedicated time to prayer. And knowing the Scripture, Jesus had come, said to come like little children in faith, trusting the One who saves. Who can save your soul. Yet it's profound. Jesus' message of selflessness and giving yourself to others regardless of who they are. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you regardless of who they are, goes against the sinful nature of all human beings. In the early days of the apostles, one of the claims brought against them by opposition was that they were turning the world upside down. They were turning the world upside down with this countercultural message. That's radical. That's radical, folks. Are we willing to give ourselves up for other people? Will we give our lives for them? Will we give up our lives for them? Are we quietly, quietly, yet boldly turning the world upside down in St. Mary's County? Are we willing to turn this county upside down with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ's gospel? Are we willing... He is. He'll go with you. The gospel, brothers and sisters, as I look out of here and I know so many of you know Christ, the gospel is the power of your salvation. But I can see objections building in people's minds. Can see objections. I get it. I'm out there in the world every day. Maybe not as much as I used to be. I work from home now. But I'm virtually out there in the world with coworkers from all over the globe. And I get it. The message of Jesus Christ is going to bring suffering and opposition and hurt to your life, your relationships. You say, it might cost me my job. It might cost me this relationship with my sister, my brother, my wife. It might cost me everything. It will cost you everything. 
It might cost you your job. It might break your relationship with somebody. It might not. Look at what Jesus had to say about it. Turn, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. When we worry about these things and we form these objections, these worldly objections to doing the will of God commanded to us by Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 10, verse 24. Because we worry about opposition, persecution, suffering, strained relationships. Now, I'm not talking you go out in the world and you be a knucklehead. You don't go out there and you're not obnoxious. So I said quietly yet boldly. Let your faith speak the truth in love and let people know you care. It still may get you fired. You are blessed if it does. You get fired for being a knucklehead and preaching instead of working on the clock. Well, you got your reward. So Matthew chapter 10, verse 24. That's page 864 in your pew Bible. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. If they called the master of the house Beelzebul, it's another name for a demon or the devil, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore... You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And here it is. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Is he worth it? Is he worth it? Is Jesus Christ worth it? Is he worthy? The song goes, Chris Tomlin's song, 
Is He worthy? Is He worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is He worthy of this? He is. He is. The last verse today, passage leaves us on an ominous note. As we close in here to wrap up, darkness comes over the whole land. Jesus suffered the wrath of God, verse 33. It's all been leading to this point. The gospel writers are not overly concerned with Jesus' physical suffering as much as they're concerned with his spiritual suffering. His spiritual suffering. They don't even go into detail about the crucifixion itself, how terrible it was. I think that's on purpose. They knew how terrible it was. I'm not going to go there either. I'm not going to go there either because they don't. What's most important to them is what we find from the writings of Paul over in Galatians 3.13. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. What does that tell you about Judas also? Beaten, broken, bloodied, hung on a cross, our Savior and Lord suffered and died in darkness. The crushing weight of the fullness of God's anger and judgment against sins of the world are being brought down on Him. Being brought down on Him. But that's not the end of the story, is it? No, it's not. We have a certain hope. Romans 5, 1 through 5, one more, two more turns to passages, and then. We'll come to the end. Romans 5. Turn over to Romans 5, verses 1. Page 1000 of the Pew Bible. Brother Jason, I know this is one of your favorite passages. Romans 5. And I want us to focus right on the middle, the tail end of verse 2, but we're going to start with verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, faith in Jesus Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. Through Him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And here it is. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces perseverance and endurance produces or produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the holy spirit who has been given to us DA Carson writes this so sweeping of vision such a sweeping vision changes all of our priorities Everything we think, everything we feel, maximal comfort in this fallen world is now low on our agenda. The real question is how our current circumstances are tied to our faith in Jesus Christ, our peace with God, and our prospect of seeing Him. Here then is a philosophy of suffering. A philosophy of suffering, a perspective that ties it both to the salvation we now enjoy and the consummation of that salvation when the glory of God is fully revealed to us. 
We have a certain hope that one day we will see the glory of God. It's certain. It's not some fantasy that we wish is true. That's why Paul can write in Philippians 3, 8-11, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection, may share His sufferings, become like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Amen. Amen. When Paul writes that in Philippians, it is not a past event. It is an ongoing journey for the Christian in their life to attain the resurrection. Not that you can earn it through works. You can't. But we follow Christ in His way. This is the way because of what He's done through His grace in saving us. Friend, I ask you today, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Friend, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? If you don't, why not? Why not today know the Lord Jesus Christ? He's extending the invitation to you to forgive your sins. You can know Him today. Today is the day of salvation. In a few minutes, we're going to start singing. And you come down here. I'll be here. Brother Dave will be up here. Pastor Jason's over there. Or you talk to another Christian you know here at the church, if you feel more comfortable that way. You come. You come down here and you respond. And you do business with the Lord today. You do business with the Lord today. But you have to come before Him broken and humble like the tax collector. Tax collector. He said, Forgive me, Lord. I am a sinner and would not even look up to heaven. Bet you all didn't think I can get down like that. You know, one thing about Parkinson's is you got to exercise a lot. So I'm a little more mobile than people think. And I know a little thing or two about suffering. But it ain't nothing compared to what we just read. What He did for us. Brother, sister, you know the Lord Jesus and all that He went through for you. Perhaps you're struggling with grief or suffering with a health crisis, suffering with a crisis of faith. Whatever it is you're going through, perhaps you know someone who is suffering somehow in your life. You know the truth of the glory of God, the hope of the glory of God. Yet you're struggling. You're struggling to reconcile the truth of an all-good God and evil and suffering in this world. If He's all-powerful, if He's all-good, why does He allow evil and suffering? 
That's a question for another day, but I'd be happy to discuss it with you. And I have a great book that I could loan you or point you to by Don Carson called How Long, O Lord. I really recommend it in preparation for suffering before it happens. Perhaps you're struggling to reconcile that. You're not alone. You're not alone. Others go through the same struggle as well. I'll be honest with you, I've gone through it myself several times over the years trying to reconcile it. And you know what? We have to set our sights on eternity. We have to set our sights on Jesus Christ. Because what happened with Peter when he got out of the boat? You remember that story? Peter said, tell me, Lord. Tell me to come out of the boat. He comes out of the boat and he's walking on the water with Jesus. And what happens? He sees the wind and the waves. Down he goes into the water. But who's up there? Jesus. He goes down. He grabs Peter's hand. And he pulls him out. Pulls him out. Turn towards Jesus. When he reaches that hand out to you, you grab it as if your life depends on it because it does. It does. It does. He may not rescue you immediately from your grief or your suffering, but you better believe he will walk with you through your own garden of Gethsemane. You are precious in His sight. You come down here when we sing and you pray with me. You let the rest of us shoulder some of your load. We'll shoulder it together. The elders will pray with you no matter what it is. You don't even have to tell us what it is. You just come down and you say, pray with me, please. I'm struggling. I'm struggling. And we will do it. We will do it. We'll put your hand in the hand of Jesus because He is the great sympathizer and He is there to comfort your soul. You know that song, there's my nose, got to catch it again. I'll leave you with this. That song we sang earlier, or that we that I said earlier, he is, is He worthy? You know the words to that. You know the response words. We do, it is. So I'm going to say those words and you respond with we do or it is. Do you feel the world is broken? Do you feel the shadows deepen? But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? Do you wish that you could see it all made new? Is all creation groaning? Is a new creation coming? Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is.